from Matthew chapter 5. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it is said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that someone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brothers and sisters, brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer. You may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it is said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. You guys nervous for me after the scripture reading? 
Well, if you weren't here last week, we started a new series called Life According to Jesus, where we're diving into the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a summary of all of Jesus's teaching. And last week we talked about the Beatitudes found in Matthew 5, 1 through 16. And those uh, simple sayings of Jesus provide us ultimately with an introduction to what it means to live a life devoted to the kingdom of God. It's an introduction to Jesus's teaching on the kingdom. And so if you missed last week and you guys were having a nice little three-day weekend, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. It's a really short one. As anyone who was here could tell you, it was about 57 minutes, it was a long one. I'm sorry everyone, but there's a lot that we need to cover, and today it may be a little bit long for us. Again, there's about seven sermons in this one sermon. We could have broken it up more, but it's good for us to see this chunk of scripture as a whole in order to see what Jesus is ultimately doing. So we could have broken it up, but in order to see what Jesus is ultimately doing, we need to look at it as a whole. As we look through this series, it's an invitation to do life differently. Not to do life how we would think it needs to be done, but instead to humble ourselves and to seek first the kingdom of God, seeing how Jesus would call us to do life. God's kingdom is a kingdom that's altogether different from how we might think. We may want to do one thing, but Jesus' kingdom is ultimately something different. And that's ultimately what we're going to see in our passage today. And so our passage today, it's six teachings of Jesus in verses 21 through 47, but those six teachings are actually wrapped in two interesting sayings in verses 17 through 20 and then in verse 48. So in order to take as a whole those six teachings of Jesus, we first must look at verses 17 through 20 and then at the end look at verse 48. So I want to remind us, before we dive in, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' purpose in the Sermon on the Mount is to expound on his main message. Anyone know what his main message is? Okay. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Really easy. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's Jesus' main message throughout his ministry. And what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount is showing in greater detail what the repentant lifestyle is all about that should characterize the people of God. That's you and me as Christians. So as we dive into these teachings, we need to realize the life that Jesus is calling us towards. It's a different kind of life, a life that's rooted in who he is, his holiness, his glory, his goodness, and not life how we may want it to be lived. Now, remember last week, I gave us this big warning at the beginning of the sermon. Throughout this series, there are going to be things that Jesus says that are going to rub us the wrong way. Okay, He's going to say some things that are going to be different than the way we may think about them or the way that we may want to go in our life or how we may uh, think in our thoughts. But remember, these are Jesus' words. These aren't my words. So if you've got a problem with the sermon today, remember, you've got a problem with Jesus, not me. So keep the stones in your pocket. Keep the tomatoes put away. We're talking about the words of Jesus today. You can also just send me a message to uh, I don't want to receive it at northcountryalliance.com. So that, that email will go dire- directly to me. Or you can send it to office at northcountryalliance.com and Renata will get it and uh, she'll respond to you with great love. I'm just kidding. You can email me if you have a problem with something I say. I'm just the messenger this morning. Your qualm isn't with me, it's with Jesus, and I think he has you beat at the end of the day. So let's just keep that in mind. 
There's this wonderful quote from Leonard Ravenhill in his book, Why Revival Tarries. And it's one that I underlined the first time that I read it, and I laugh at it every time I do a message like this. And he simply writes this. When there's something in the Bible that churches don't like, they call it legalism. Yikes. So let's remember that as we're diving into this. Okay, let's go ahead and read verses 17 through 20 again. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's certainly a high calling that Jesus lays out for us. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, who were the best of the best in first century Israel, they were the teachers of the law, the expounders of the law, and I'm going to take a drink so I don't just, you know, keep holding this in my hand. I'm awkward this morning. I'm sorry, guys. You you get what you get, and I'm a little awkward today. I'm going to blame it on the COVID recovery, but... Or I'm just an awkward person. We'll go with that one. This is a high calling. To be more righteous than that of the most righteous people that Jesus' original audience was thinking of. It's a very high calling. And the reason that Jesus shares this is ultimately twofold. One, he's wanting us to see that God is a holy God. God is a holy God, and that as Messiah, Jesus hasn't come so that we can live our lives however we want to live. That's not why Jesus comes so that we can get forgiveness, receive the get-out-of-hell-free card, and then go live however we want. That's not why Jesus has come. He's also wanting us to see that on our own, in our own righteousness, in our own works, we'll never measure up to God's standards. That we must receive God's grace through Jesus in order to actually be made righteous. In order to have that righteousness that far exceeds that of the Pharisees. Okay, I see some, some blank faces, so I want to share this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A guy that's much smarter than me, and I'm hoping this one quote will kind of help us to see what I'm talking about there. It's a bit longer, so bear with me. He says this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. 
Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the one true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Okay, that's done, sermon over, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer just gave us everything we needed to know in that little quote. I'm just kidding, you guys didn't make it out that easy today. But this is the summary of what Jesus is trying to do. To see that grace is something that's costly. Yes, it's the free gift of God, but it also requires us to die to ourselves, to take up our cross daily and to follow Jesus according to his ways and not our own ways. Yes, grace empowers us and forgives us, and God pours out his mercy upon us, but that doesn't give us license to live however we want. It's as Paul says in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's where you guys yell out, by no means. There we go. Thank you, Sam. By no means. We don't go on sinning so that grace will increase. God's grace is extravagant. But it doesn't free us up to live however we want. Instead, it actually empowers us to pursue holiness more and more. So as we dive in today, let's remember that while Jesus' standard of holiness is weighty, that he is God and we are not. He is God and we are not. In fact, that's just a great mantra for all of our lives. Like if you want to just tattoo that on your forehead, he is God, I am not. I'm just kidding. Please don't tattoo that on your forehead. That's not a good idea. But this is a mantra we should live by. Jesus is God, we are not. We don't get to choose how we follow Jesus. We must do life according to Jesus. These first few verses of Jesus' sermon are also important to us because they establish what Jesus isn't doing. He isn't coming and saying that the law is wrong, and now he has come to set the record straight. That's not what Jesus is doing in his ministry. Instead, he's showing just how serious the law actually is so that people can see their unrighteousness, as Paul would even go on to expound in Romans, where he says, if I hadn't known the law, I wouldn't have known what sin was was. Unless we think that we're exempt from all Jesus is teaching, because somehow that's made its way into the church, that the Sermon on the Mount is not actually for us, it was for Jesus' original followers. That's not the case. This is for us, it's something we need to pay attention to. Everything that Jesus teaches about fits inside the framework of what Jesus calls the greatest and second greatest commandment. That is to love God with everything that we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're supposed to pay attention to this. It applies to us as well. And finally, before we start diving into these six teachings, by framing his teaching with the phrase, you've heard it said, Jesus is using a common rhetorical device that early rabbis would use. And so by Jesus talking about it this way, he's using something that his listeners would have already understood. He says, you've heard it said, but what makes Jesus very different is how he goes about it after that. He says, but I say to you, He's saying that he has the authority. He is the one who ultimately shared the words of life in the first place, and he is the one that can tell us how we're supposed to live. The authority of Jesus is telling us how we're supposed to live our lives. So let's pay attention. Okay, you guys ready? 
Oh man, that wasn't enthusiastic. You guys ready to dive in? This is the word of God. These are the words of truth, the word of life. We ready? There we go. Okay. I'm going to hold you to that because we're going to be a little bit long as we go through this. So you said you were ready. I did have to coax you just a little bit though. Okay, let's look at Jesus' first teaching, and it's about the really easy, nice subject of murder. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, if we're going through God's top ten, his list of ten commandments in the Old Testament, when we get to thou shalt not murder, that's a pretty low bar, right? Like, thou shalt not murder, comparatively to the other commandments. Like, yeah, I'm going to get frustrated with some people occasionally, but like, I don't want to literally go and wring their neck. But what Jesus is doing is telling us that, hey, it's not just about the physical act of murder, but it's something of this inner nature that's altogether different. It's about what's in our heart. And Jesus isn't talking just about mere frustration, like someone cuts you off in traffic and you get a little frustrated or you get a little angry. Later, he would even say, be angry and do not sin. So that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus was certainly frustrated with the Pharisees and the money changers in the temple. He flips over tables. So we know that it's not just about this random anger or, or, or random frustration. What Jesus is talking about, what he means when he's talking about being angry, is when we see others as worthless. Because when we see others as worthless, we're effectively saying that they're dead to us. And Jesus ultimately helps us to see this by using the Aramaic word raka, here, which literally means empty-headed or worthless. You fool. You're good for nothing. You are worthless. You are scum beneath the earth. That's what Jesus is ultimately talking about. And this is a much higher standard than I shouldn't physically kill someone. Jesus is holding us to a higher standard of what it means to not commit murder. And I think this one is one that we as Christians desperately need to grow in. We should be people who love, people who are kind, people who take the good news of the gospel to a world around us, not crying out all the time, you fool, you good for nothing, how are you so dumb? That's not how we should be as Christians. The people that disagree with us are not our enemies. We do not wage battles against flesh and blood. The people that disagree with us, guess what? They're also loved by God so much that Jesus gave his life for them. 
So in light of this, we must pay careful attention to how we live. If we live in such a way as to see others as worthless, as utter fools or empty-headed, then we've ultimately spoken death over them. And this isn't something that's minor to Jesus. This is of profound importance to Jesus. In fact, he warns of hellfire and uses the Jewish courts as a way of talking about the court of judgment from God. He's very serious about this. We find ourselves condemned to judgment when we murder others through thinking of them as worthless fools. This is a high calling of Jesus. And we're all equally condemned before God because of our sin. We've all sinned, we've all fall short of the glory of God, yet Jesus sees us as worthy enough to give his life for. Have you thought about that? We've sinned against God, but yet God shows his love for us anyway. He calls us redeemable. He sees us as vessels of grace, and this should affect how we see others. We shouldn't see them as worthless or fools. We should see them as people who are loved by God. Even those that we would disagree with profoundly on any number of issues, even those who have physically wronged us, we must see them as image bearers. So let's be above the age of outrage in which we live. I love that, how some people have quipped our current age. It's an age of outrage. Let's be above that. Let's be people who reflect the love and grace of Jesus. Oh, goodness. The love and grace of Jesus, or G-bug, apparently, in my throat. Be people that reflect the love of grace of Jesus. Not people of outrage, not people of frustration, not people of anger, not people who are against the world, but people who reflect who Jesus is. All right, let's move on to Jesus' second teaching, and it gets a lot easier. We're talking about lust. All right, Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So once again, Jesus is showing us that the way of righteousness is weightier than his hearers had considered before. He's calling people to a higher status of living. And the language that Jesus ultimately uses here is the same that's used in the 10th commandment to not covet your neighbor's wife. And what's really interesting about this is that many Jewish teachers typically only emphasize women's seductiveness in teachings about lust. The men were were off the hook. It was all on the women. But Jesus does the opposite here by putting the responsibility on the one who lusts. He says, you are the one that chooses to do sin. Yes, we live inside of a world, especially now, that is a hyper-sexualized world, but Jesus puts the onus on us. He says that we are responsible for not looking lustfully after others. Now, that doesn't give us carte blanche to dress however we want. We must all pursue holiness and seek not to cause others to stumble. But that's another sermon that we could get to. It's not the sermon that we're, we're preaching today. 
why this is so important of Jesus putting emphasis on this is because we do live within that culture that's hypersexualized. It's certainly more sexualized than the culture that Jesus was speaking to. Like, the culture that Jesus was speaking to, their idea of seductiveness was women with uncovered hair. Like, we have well surpassed that. Like, all of you sinners out there. Like, I'm seeing so many uncovered hair this morning. I'm just kidding, guys. Lighten up just a little bit. We've far surpassed this idea of seductiveness. We've leaped over that line long, long ago. But the message of Jesus is still applicable. We must not lust even when temptation is all around us. In fact, I would say that the command of Jesus to not look lustfully is even more relevant for us today since we live among such a perverse culture. We're to be people that are pure in heart, people that seek after God. Now, I'll be the first to admit that Jesus' solution to the problem of lust is one that seems pretty radical. Like gouging out eyes and chopping off your hands. Don't worry, this is not an illustrated sermon this morning. I left the hatchet at home, I left the big needles at home. This is not an illustrated sermon this morning. But by doing this, Jesus is ultimately showing us the seriousness of sin. He's trying to get us to see that sin is something that we should run from as far as we can. As Christians, we cannot have a casual relationship with sin. We can't have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of sin and it'll all wash out in the end. That's not what we're called to do. We must be people that flee from sin that run in the opposite direction. We need to keep a constant watch over ourselves, be people who are devoted to prayer, be people who are devoted to the things of God, so that that way when we are tempted, when we see things that we don't want to see, we can look to Jesus and not any of those other things that are of so much less significance than Jesus. So I want to get specific for a moment. And this is where you guys can take out the stones and the tomatoes, but throw them in the direction of the cross, because this is the one that's speaking to you, not, not ultimately me. God's only design for sex is for it to happen within a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. That's it. That's what's outlined as the biblical uh, basis for a healthy sexual relationship. One man, one woman in a marriage relationship. That's it. That's the only thing that's permissible. Nothing else is permitted for Christians. And as we've just seen, Jesus takes this seriously. It's something that he does take it seriously. So this morning, I'm not calling you to to cut off your hand or to, to gouge out your body or to gouge out your eye. But I am calling you to maybe examine yourselves. Maybe to to see if the way that you're living is the way that Jesus calls you to live. If you're looking at pornography, stop looking at pornography. If you're lusting after others constantly, stop lusting after others. If you're having sex outside of marriage, stop having sex outside of marriage. God's grace does not give you license to live however you want to live. And if Christians were habitually committing sin, meaning that we choose sin time and time and time again over the things of God, then we need to take a really deep look at ourselves. We need to take a deep look and see whether or not we've truly made Jesus our Lord. Because lordship means surrendering to the ways of Jesus. 
If we're coming to Jesus and seeking his salvation and his grace, we must make him Lord. We must seek his ways and not our ways. Now, I'm not saying that if Christians commit a single sin, then they're in danger of hell. But rather, if you're continually and habitually choosing sin over the way of Jesus, then you need to take a hard look about whether or not you're following Jesus. I think if we would do this, it would radically change the state of our world. If we took sin as seriously as Jesus, things would change. Because the early church, they took this seriously. They took this seriously, being conformed to the image of Christ. They didn't live however they want and be like, oh, well, God's grace has got me. God's forgiveness has got me. His mercy will cover me so I can live and do however we want. That is a false gospel. You can't live like hell and escape hell. I'm sorry to be blunt this morning, but this is of supreme importance. We must surrender our lives to Jesus. Yes, forgiveness is available. Yes, mercy is available. Yes, grace is available. But we nullify them when we constantly seek other things, when we constantly choose sin over God's ways. Repentance is a requirement for Christian living. And repentance doesn't mean just feeling sorry for our sin. It means to go in the other direction. To stop the lifestyle that we had before and to instead cling to the way of Jesus. So this morning I've said some hard things already and I'm going to say some more hard things for us. If you're in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, then get married or stop having sex. If you want to talk about what that means, I'd be happy to talk about doing your wedding. We'd be happy to, to host it here, free of charge. We would love to help you pursue God's plan for your life. If you're looking at pornography, then get an accountability partner. Put software on your devices or just throw them away altogether. Like, that's okay, too. You don't need a smartphone in your pocket all the time. I'd be happy to point you in the right direction on either of those. Your elders would love to walk alongside you and help you get freedom in this. We can't have a casual relationship with sin. All right, let's go on to the next thing that I'll get hate mail about as well. Jesus' third teaching is about divorce. Let's look at verses 31 and 32 of Matthew 5. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So in the first century, both Jewish rabbis and the Roman Empire allowed divorce for, for anything whatsoever. Like there was no, nothing that they had to prove or anything like that. It was no-fault divorce. Anyone could get divorced for any number of things. But what Jesus is doing is calling his listeners, again, to a higher understanding of righteousness. Divorce is not God's plan for us. It's not God's plan for us, and it's something that should only be considered in very specific circumstances, such as adultery or abuse. Those are the, the criteria that we should consider divorce from. But since no-fault divorce was legalized 50 years ago here in America, the divorce rate has skyrocketed. Skyrocketed. 
And a lot of times we'll, we'll think about it, well, of course it's going to be better within the church, right? Well, barely. If you look at devout Christians in America, it's still estimated that 38% of devout Christians have been divorced. This is compared to 40 to 50% of the general population. What's interesting, when I was doing research on this, you would think that your second marriage had a better chance of success, right? Well, it's actually even worse chance of success in the second marriage than the first marriage. It's this, this cycle that goes over and over. And I would go so far as to say that this is an epidemic. It's something that has to change. And church, we can get mad at a lot of things in the world that aren't lived according to the standards of God, but we need to look at ourselves first. We must seek the ways of God. God's design for marriage is to be between one man and one woman forever with the two becoming one flesh. We're not supposed to, to separate it. It's a, it's a covenant between man wife, but there's also someone else in that covenant. God is in that covenant. It's a commitment to be faithfully united as one, despite what you may or may not feel on any day, month, or year. Well, pastor, I just don't love him anymore. Pastor, she's changed. She's not the woman that I once married. I want you to, to listen to me in love for just a moment. So what? So what? what? What's our point? Why does it, it matter if they're not the person that I married? What if matters if they change? Guess what? You've changed too. You're not the same person that you married, that they, that they married either. See, this is an opportunity to humble ourselves, to grow in grace, to put on the meekness of Jesus. Marriage isn't easy. I know that's maybe news to, to some of us, but marriage is difficult. It's hard. There are disagree. Don't amen too loud. He's sitting right there, Sarah. <laughs> Marriage is hard. We can all say amen for those of us that are married. It's difficult. We have disagreements. There are things that we want that our spouses don't want. There are some of us that want to move 1,800 miles away to do ministry in the North Country, and thankfully their wives say yes. Hi, Brooke. It's difficult but it's an opportunity to grow in grace every single day. It's not an opportunity to seek your own happiness. Because i got a secret for you. God cares more about your holiness than your ephemeral happiness. He cares much more about your holiness than your happiness. Now for just a moment, I, I've talked uh, harshly about divorce. I, I want to speak for a moment to those who are maybe sitting in the room that have gone through a divorce that are hearing these, uh, these difficult words and are feeling the weight of what I've said so far. Sin should make us grieve. It's something that grieves the heart of God. We talked about that last week. But forgiveness is available. This sin is not bigger than any other sin. Your past divorce does not disqualify you from receiving God's mercy and grace. There's forgiveness that's available. So yes, let's take serious the call of marriage. Let's take serious this, this call of not getting divorced for just trivial reasons. But if you're sitting here today and you're like, man, my past is junk. All of our pasts are junk. We've all sinned against a holy God and there is forgiveness available. Jesus died for all of our sins and he's able to wash us white as snow. 
I haven't seen anyone take out stones or tomatoes yet, so I, I assume that means I can keep on going. Is that right? Okay. I promise the rest of these will become a little bit easier. Well, maybe. This next one's a little bit easier for us. Jesus' fourth teaching is on oaths. So Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So this one, as we're, we're reading through this and reading through the teachings of Jesus, where we're like, Okay, Jesus, you just talked about these three things. How does this one relate to, to those other more uh, consequential things that you just talked about? And that's part of Jesus' point here. He's showing to us that all sin is offensive to God, even the ones that we deem as inconsequential. Now, it was common within the first century context in Jewish culture to swear by all kinds of things. Like they would swear by the temple or the silverware in the temple or the table by which something sat on inside the temple. And based on what you ultimately said was how serious your oath was. And they're like, well, I said this, but I didn't say this. So, you know, it's not that bad. It was all kinds of silliness that they were doing. And Jesus is ultimately trying to say, don't do that. Simple, don't do that. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And ultimately, we do similar things today, but we don't put as much thought into it as they did in the first century. Jesus is inviting us for our yes to be yes, our no to be no, and telling us that oaths are ultimately meaningless because they appeal to something that is outside of the oath taker's control. I love that Jesus says you can't make a single hair on your head black or white, and I'm like, thanks, Jesus. Tony says amen too, right? Can't do anything, even in our own bodies, our own hair, we have no control over it. Jesus says, let your no be no, let your yes be yes. He tells us to be people of integrity. We don't have to swear by all sorts of things if we're people that live lives of integrity. There's more that we could say here, but uh, just for the sake of time, let's go on and move on to the next one. Don't make oaths. Let your no be yet, no, your yes be yes. Jesus' fifth teaching, okay, this one may get a little bit difficult for us, is on self-denial. Read verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus here is calling his listeners to deny themselves. He wants them to deny themselves, and this is a concept that's difficult. The idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it was actually a restriction on justice in the ancient Near East cultures, meaning that justice could not ultimately exceed the offense that was committed. So when it says an eye for an eye, it's saying you can get up to an eye for an eye, but you can't seek more justice than that. 
But what Jesus is ultimately doing is he isn't going against that, but is rather saying that we shouldn't seek justice in the first place. Instead, we should be people that are willing to be cheated. And I'll be the first to admit that this is a really difficult teaching. It's a hard one for us to get, but it is the way of Jesus. I had to learn this firsthand uh, about 10 years ago. I was in ministry doing uh, full-time uh, evangelism for a season, and uh, I did some ministry with uh, someone else who was much older than me that should have had lots of integrity, and we were doing some ministry together, and he was like, okay, I've lined up this trip for us to go to. We're going to go and speak here for a week, and I'm like, okay, great. I'll send you the money uh, to buy my plane ticket. Well, that got spent on something else, and then... We had to get the tickets, and I'm like, okay, you spent that money, fine. I'll just buy the tickets myself. Then I found out the whole trip was a sham and didn't actually happen, and so I lived with that for a while. And it was a difficult thing for me to get over because this man that I was trying to do ministry with, who was supposed to be this brother in Christ, had wronged me. He had committed sin against me, and I kept messaging him. I was like, hey, man, when are you going to pay this back? Brooke and I were newlyweds at the time, and I'm like, that, you know, that money would be really useful right now in our you know, little tiny efficiency apartment that we have where our bedroom's here, and we have to put the toaster on the bathroom sink because we don't have enough kitchen space. It would have been really helpful to have that money, and I talked with a pastor at the time, and he's like, you need to forgive them. I was like, no, that's not the way of Jesus. This man has wronged me, and I demand vengeance. Well, then the Lord started working on my heart, and I forgave him. Sent him a message saying, hey, I don't know what's going on in your life, but don't worry about this. I forgive you. And guess what? I found a lot of freedom from that. It's not an easy thing for us to do, but it is how Jesus calls us to live because he knows that it provides freedom for us. If we're constantly trying to get what's owed to us, then we miss the whole idea of mercy and grace in the first place. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, verses 17 through 19. He says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. God will get the last word. He will judge all sin, and he is the righteous judge. We don't have to fight for everything that's owed to us, because God will get justice in the end. And this is something the disciples of Jesus understood really, really well. Because the disciples of Jesus, they went to their graves for the sake of the gospel. And they didn't fight back. They were crucified. They were stoned to death, not recreationally. They were stoned with rocks thrown at them. They are crucified upside down, pierced with spears, fed to lions, lit on fire for gain. And they took it as clear, pure joy because they counted themselves worthy to suffer with Jesus. We're not to be people that are constantly trying to get what we deserve, even if it's our right. The way of Jesus is found in self-denial. And Jesus helps us to see this with two of his illustrations here. He tells us to go two miles instead of one and to give our coat instead of just our shirt. And for us here today, we're like, okay, 
okay? Like, sure, Jesus, whatever you say, I'll go two miles instead of one mile. I'll give my coat instead of just my shirt. But I want to help us give some context to understand this. In the first century, Roman soldiers could make anyone work for them up to a certain limit. They could say, hey, come walk a mile. We see this in Jesus' crucifixion where they take a man and say, carry this cross. Roman soldiers could force anyone to work for them. And Jesus says, if they ask you to go one mile, go two miles. Deny yourselves. Likewise, a person could be sued for pretty much anything in the first century. But the one thing they couldn't be sued for was their coat or their cloak. They could be sued for the shirt off of their back, but their coat was considered their shelter, and so they couldn't be sued for it. But Jesus says, go above and beyond. Give even that. Allow yourself to be wronged. So what we should learn from this is we shouldn't get bogged down in fighting against everything someone does wrong against us. There are always going to be things that people do wrong against us. And we can distract ourselves by constantly trying to get justice and what's owed to us. But that's not who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be people of the gospel of Jesus. People who talk about the ministry of reconciliation, that we have had our sins forgiven. And let's reflect that to the world around us. Okay. Let's move on to the sixth and final teaching about loving enemies. Let's read verses 42 through 47. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Jesus is showing us our call as children of God. To be people of love, to love others. If we are children of God, then we will love other people. Even those whose lives we don't agree with. Even those who wrong us, even those who persecute us, we're called to love them. It's easy to love those who think like us and look like us and act like us. That's, that's an easy thing to do. But it's much harder to love those who are different from us, who would wrong us, who would persecute us and revile us. It's difficult to default to love, but that's what Jesus calls us to do. And just a side note here, to love isn't always to agree or affirm. That isn't love. That's something else altogether. That's, um, there's a word that I can't think of. It's not what we're called to do. We're called to love our enemies, to love those who persecute us. But this requires a reorientation, to deny ourselves and to see people as created in the image of God. All of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. And when we see people as God's image bearers who are in need of redemption just like us, it becomes a little easier to default to love. Our mission in the world is to spread the gospel, and we can't do this if we're hating certain groups of people or if we're constantly doing battle or seeing people as less than human. We must realize that we are not our own. That we are people that need the gospel just like everyone else. And the gospel should be of supreme importance in our lives. We love 
because he first loved us. He doesn't just tolerate us, he loves us. Have you, have you thought about how much God loves you? He is holy, he is altogether different. There is no evil, there is no sin within him, and yet in me there's lots of sin. There's lots of evil within me, and yet God still loves me anyway. Jesus is the perfect Son of God, right? He spent time here on the earth among dirty, rotten sinners. Like, have you thought about that? Like, Jesus came and surrendered and came from heaven, became incarnate in the human body, and he doesn't hide away from all the dirty, rotten sinners. He goes and lives life among them. He had every right to, to live and isolate himself and to be like, look at all these sinners. But that's not what Jesus does. He lives among the people. He eats with them. He dines with them. He shows them what love looks like in action. He talks to them about the things of God. And yes, he does call them to repent and change their ways. This is what we should be about as well. On the cross, he even goes so far as to declare, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. God delights in showing mercy. In the same way, we should delight in showing mercy as well. We should be people of love. Okay, let me wrap this up for us, looking at that last verse, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ouch. What a difficult teaching, Jesus. How can we, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, this is ultimately serving as a summary of what Jesus just taught. To be holy as God is holy. And this is actually a place of tension for us because it's such a high calling. How can we ever measure up to God's standard of holiness? He's God, we are not. We've gone over that. Well, that's part of Jesus' point. He wants us to see that because on our own, we are unholy. We cannot measure up to God's standards. We need his grace. We need his forgiveness. We need his mercy. In order to have the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees that Jesus talked about back in verse 20, we need the gospel. We need Jesus to bridge the gap. And this is the good news of the gospel. While we cannot measure up, Jesus can. While we are full of sin, he's perfect. He became sin for us so that we can stand before God in his righteousness. Not our own righteousness, not our own sin, not everything that's wrong in our lives, but we can stand firm in his righteousness, knowing that we are forgiven and made whole. And he tells us to come to him and place our trust in him. But again, here's where that tension comes in. We can't just claim God's grace and ask for his forgiveness and continue down a path of habitual sin. That's not the life that we're supposed to live. We're supposed to seek to be conformed to the image of Christ. To have our positional righteousness become our vocational righteousness. I've said that many times over the last several months because it's something that we need to understand. Here's how one commentator put it. He said, it's the duty of Christians to desire and aim at and press toward a perfection in grace and holiness. That's, that's the goal. That's what we're aiming towards, to have this perfection in grace and holiness. 
It's this process of sanctification that we can't do on our own, but need the empowerment of the Spirit inside of us to make us the people that God wants us to be. We must not be people that always twist God's ways into what we want them to be. We must be people that see God's ways for what they truly are. This is the way of life. This is life according to Jesus. And we should be people that seek to live according to God's standards. Not according to our own standards, not looking to our own understanding or what we feel right or what seems good to us, but instead must always look to God. This isn't easy. It's difficult. It will require us to repent and reorient our lives and choose the narrow road instead of the broad road. It will require the grace of God to pick us up when we fail, because we will fail. We will not do this perfectly, but we must press on. I want to end by reading this from the book of James, in, verses, uh, in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in all that they do. As Christians, we can't find our identity in anything other than Jesus. Not the things that make us happy, not the things that give us pleasure. We must only find our identity in Jesus. Everything around us in this world is formational. In other words, what goes in will come out. What we consume is the type of people we will become. Who we hang out with is the type of people we become. What type of media we watch will be the type of people that we become. Is something that we must realize and seek first the kingdom of God. We need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, as Jesus would say. We're to be people of Jesus. We're to be people of reconciliation. Then we must be serious about denying ourselves and following Jesus. It isn't easy, but there's no other life that compares to this. There's joy unspeakable for those who walk in the way of Jesus. The blessed life is found in submitting ourselves to Jesus because he loves us with an unfailing love. A love that rescues us from our sin, from our shame, from our scorn, from our brokenness. He gives us new life. A life that we can walk with him in the cool of the day. He's shown us the way and how we must walk in it. Why would we continue to seek life according to the flesh when we could live life according to the Spirit? Let's press on and be conformed to the image of Christ. Please stand with me as we pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for for showing us the way so that we might walk in it. I thank you for your your mercy, your forgiveness, your grace. That even though we sin, even though we fall short time and time again, you offer us a way out. You offer us freedom, salvation. 
to be restored before you. Not having our sins counted against us, but instead to stand before you in Christ's righteousness and not our own. I pray this morning that you would help us to see your goodness. Help us to see your grace. Lord, we want to surrender to your ways. To live life according to Jesus and not according to us. We make crummy gods. Be Lord of our lives today. In Christ's name that I pray. Amen. As we prepare to sing this chorus before we take communion, I want to encourage you to do just a few things. The first, if you're not a Christian, if you're, you're here today and you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus, you haven't accepted his offer of salvation, you haven't surrendered to him, if you're tired of doing life on your own terms, I encourage you to cry out to him today. To come to the cross. Scripture tells us that if we declare that Jesus is Lord, we believe in our hearts that he died for our sins and was resurrected from the dead, we will be saved. Today can be the day of salvation. You don't have to walk out of here the same way that you walked in. You can find freedom today. If you want someone to pray with you, please come find me on the first row. I'd be happy to pray with you. And second, if you're a Christian this morning, and after hearing these words of Jesus, you realize that you're walking in a way that's contrary to the way of Jesus, I encourage you to take some time this morning to repent, to come to the cross, to allow God's mercy and grace to pour over you, to allow his forgiveness to be poured over you so that you can live in freedom, not clinging to the past life, but being made new in Jesus Christ. 